You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on His yoke. We are pressing into His promise of true life. My name is Nick Wirens. I serve as the associate pastor here at Sojourn Church Carlisle, for those who don't know me. Um, We are continuing on and nearing the end of our study in the book of Matthew. Um, Next week, because we wanted to save the resurrection for Resurrection Sunday, um, we'll be looking at Jesus' resurrection. So normally a text that we might cover on Good Friday, we're looking at today. But nonetheless, the implications of it ring true every day, not just on Good Friday. If you do have a Bible, I encourage you to open it and look at it, actually grab it and feel it in your hands. This is your book. This is our book. It's not just my book. There's, uh, it's not like I have special, special divine powers that I can read it and you cannot, so I encourage you to open it and, and follow along um, as we are a people of the book. Uh, back in 2015, um, I remember uh, my, my grandfather passed away. Um, it was the first like real significant death that I had ever experienced in my life. It was the first um, close family relative that I'd ever had pass away. Um, As my wife and I waited um, for the time when we would travel to the funeral, I remember laying in bed one night and being hit like a ton of bricks with a realization. I am going to die. As I lied in bed, I, I I couldn't escape thinking about it. Fear welled up. Anxiety started to well up. There was no reason for me as a a relatively healthy but mildly overweight 20-something-year-old to be thinking about my death and fear it. But nonetheless, I sat there anxious, thinking I am going to die. You know, death is, is not something that we like to think about. It's not something that we like to talk about. But we find ourselves in a, in a cultural moment when we literally cannot look away. In an article she wrote a couple weeks ago entitled, What You're Feeling is Grief, author Nyla Barton writes this. She said, more than 500,000, now as of this morning, 548,000, People in the U.S. alone have died from COVID-19. Mothers, fathers, grandparents, friends, and neighbors. Some have arrived at a new nadir or low point of the pandemic, where the tools previously used to cope with the unprecedented loss and stress no longer seem to work. Instead, many Americans are reaching a new level of profound collective grief. For those lost, and for an entire way of life that appears increasingly unlikely to resume as it once was. Death is before many of us in ways that we have never in our lives experienced. German philosopher Martin Heidegger, um, who many regard as one of the most influential thinkers of the 20th, 20th century, he points out that one of the ways that we as a people 
try to avoid thinking about death is we kind of abstract it. We, we make it out there, right? So yes, we acknowledge there's a bio, biological reality that everyone dies. But when we think about everyone, that actually doesn't include myself. Uh, philosopher Jamie Smith, he summarizes this idea in this way. He says, when it comes to death in general, we are certain that everyone dies. But when it comes to our own death, we are fugitives from the truth. We run from facing it. When we say that everyone dies, it actually allows us in a weird way to not face up to our own death. Now, what's interesting is that that Heidegger actually talks about this idea that for us to achieve authenticity, um, which is something another day we can deal with in our cultural experience of authenticity, but to live our best lives, Heidegger would say, we actually need to face our death. We need to stare right at it. So for me to live my best life now, I actually need to, as he says, be towards my (laughs) non-being. So I need to look at my death. This is something that we see in culture, right? We see this idea in movies, literature, music, this idea that when we're faced with death, then we actually reevaluate and we can really live, right? Think of the the 2007 comedy with Morgan Freeman and uh, Jack Nicholson, right? They're, They're both these terminally ill patients. They realize they haven't lived the life they wanted and facing death They come up with this list and do all these crazy, fun things, I guess, that they always wanted to do. Or more recent, right? You can think of the the 2020 Disney movie, Soul, right? Joe, who um, is finally getting his big break that he's always longed for. He gets tragically and unexpectedly struck and dies, and his soul goes into the great beyond, right? And he's fighting, trying to figure out, how can I get back to my body, All the while, he's beginning to reevaluate his life and what living really means. Or for another example, my country music fans out there, right? 2005, Tim McGraw, Grammy-winning country song, Live Like You Were Dying, right? It's like peak Tim McGraw right there, just white shirt. I think the video, he has like a white button down and it's not probably buttoned down at all. So you see a little chest hair, you know. Um, I thought about that look for this morning, but I've, I've saved it. I'll save it for when we go outside again. But he, he has these lines, right? Uh, I went skydiving, Rocky Mountain climbing, 2.7 seconds on a bull man named Fu Manchu. I love deeper, spoke sweeter, watched an eagle as it was flying. Like, so as he faces death, he's more American, right? But he says to the person he's talking to, I hope that one day you get the chance to live like you were dying. This motif is everywhere. If you live like you were dying, then you would really be living. When death comes right in your face, then you'll learn how to live. But what if that's not enough? What if doing all these cool and crazy things doesn't actually deal with that nagging fear of death? (laughs) What if it actually doesn't change anything about you? What if it doesn't solve the sting of death, the aches, the questions, the uncertainty that haunt us as we lie awake at night? What if at the beginning, our question of how to deal with death is actually the wrong question? 
As we look at our text today in Matthew, I think what we'll see is that the Bible is asking a completely different question. It's not asking what will man do about death, but what will God do about death? Before we actually dive in and look at our text, let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we can gather together as your people to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to each other with thankfulness in our hearts towards Christ Jesus, as Colossians tells us. We thank you for the treat and the gift it is that we get to open up your word to wrestle with hard truths, specifically to wrestle with death. (laughs) I pray that this morning, God, as we look at the death of Christ, that we would see that, as the song says, there's no guilt in life and no fear in death for those who are in Christ Jesus. So help me, Lord, help me to make that truth manifest this morning. Speak through me. Anything that's garbage, please just let it fall away. I pray, Spirit, that you would speak powerfully to all of us. Pray all this in your name. Amen. So as we kind of catch up where we've been in Matthew, right, Jesus has been betrayed by one of his closest friends, Judas. He's been left out to dry by his best friend, probably Peter. Um, He's been wrongfully tried and convicted. He's been whipped, mocked, spat on, stripped, naked, embarrassed, shamed, And now we see him nailed to a cross, hung up, and left for dead. As Jesus nears his death, we see creation, as we sang, groaning. Mourning as its very creator is now being drained of life. Look in your Bibles with me at verse 45. It says, from noon until three in the afternoon, the brightest, hottest time of day, darkness came over the whole land. Much like the rising and the setting of the sun, Jesus' story involves the breaking in and the taking away of light. At birth, we see a star broke into the night sky with brightness, announcing his birth. At his baptism, the birth of his ministry, if you will, the skies opened up and a beautiful dove of light descended upon Jesus. At his transfiguration with he and his three closest friends, his face, it says, shone like the light and his clothes appeared as white as the light. So now here at the end, as the light is snuffed out of Jesus, creation's light, or the light of day, is also being snuffed out. It's as if creation itself is in mourning, and like a bereft funeral goer, creation is veiling itself in the clothes of darkness. And at last, through all the pain, the agony that we've looked at over the last few weeks as we've studied this, verse 46, it says, About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus speaks here. In his native tongue, it's the only time in Matthew that we hear Jesus speaking in Aramaic. It's as if the the sacredness of his words uh, is one that Matthew feels he must preserve. There's the old saying that says, translation is treason, meaning when you translate something, you don't pack in all the meaning. So Matthew says, no, here is what Christ cried out on the cross. See it. And experience it in all its sacredness. There's no translation from Matthew, just Jesus' raw emotional cry. 
we see that Jesus, he doesn't explain his death in his final cry, but rather his last cry, like is often the case for us, it's a question. He says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Look at these words, my God. He, Jesus doesn't use the same endearing term that he used in the Garden of Gethsemane, the term father. He says, my God, almost as if he's maybe feeling distant or, or a coldness in a way that he hasn't felt previously. He asks why. Jesus, in his humanity, is in a place of confusion, of wondering, of, of wanting answers to life's most difficult question. And then abandoned, Jesus feels alone. The presence of his God, the the one thing that he's counted on through the abandonment and betrayal of all his friends, it now feels like it's gone. But notice in that, right, he still says, my God. He still cries out to God. The God who Jesus feels isn't there is the very God that he cries out to. Commentator Dale Bruner, he he says, real faith may be calling on God even when experience says God is not there. Real faith may be calling on God even when experience says God is not there. And I know that's, that's a word for somebody here, right? Maybe you feel like God is nowhere to be found right now. You cry out, no response. You watch, nothing's happening. You listen and it's silent. But real faith is sometimes calling on God even though you don't feel like he's there. When that cancer doesn't go away, when that child still hasn't come, when that abusive boss still hasn't been fired yet, when that best friend still has not repented to you, real faith may be calling on God even when experience says God's not there. But look at the continuing agony of the scene. Jesus is crying out in, in utter desperation, in a place of utter vulnerability. And still the mockery continues. As he fades to death, his last experience is continuing to hear confusion and, I mean, just outright uh, despair and mockery and jeering at his very identity. Verse 47, it says, When some of those standing there heard him cry out, they said, He's calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a stick, and offered him a drink. But the rest said, no, 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 let's see if Elijah comes to save him. If this guy is really the Messiah, let's see his cool magical powers at work. And then with his his final act of willful obedience, verse 50 says, but Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and gave up his spirit. Notice here, Jesus' active presence, even in dying, he willingly, it says, gave up his spirit. He wasn't forced, he wasn't coerced, he willingly gave up his spirit. Jesus uh, foreshadows this in John 10, 18. He says, no one takes my life from me, but I Lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right 
to take it up again. This is the gospel message. The gruesome, excruciating death that we deserve is taken on by Jesus, the Son of God. The abandonment, the mockery, the betrayal, the shame, the guilt that we're all supposed to experience because of our sin is willingly absolved by Jesus Christ. That's the gospel, friends. And look at what the gospel does. Look at what this powerful, life-altering, creation-altering message does. Verse 51, suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were spilt split, excuse me, rocks don't spill stuff unless, I guess, Exodus, what? Um, The tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And they came out of the tombs after his resurrection, entered the holy city and appeared to many. Hold on. People were resurrected. That's crazy. (laughs) The rocks split. That's crazy. Earth quaked. The early church father Jerome writes this. He says, It is not doubtful to any what these great signs signify, that heaven and earth and all things, all of creation, should bear witness to their crucified Lord. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is is not some individualistic endeavor. It's not some pie in the sky like me and God thing alone. Christ's work is cosmological, meaning it affects everything. It affects all of creation. Bruner hammers this home. He says, When cosmic events occur in this and the following verses, we learn that Jesus' death was not just an individual death, relevant only to individuals. It affected the whole universe. Now, the challenge of preaching is you can't touch everything in every sermon, okay? So I'm sure you would love to know like what happened to the resurrected people. I can't give you a full-on explanation because people have been writing about this verse since it happened, okay? So there's a lot of material. Um, but one interpretation that I, I favor, I, I think it, it is a fair theological um, conjecture, if you will, um, is that the resurrection, or these events, we'll just say, is a foretaste of Jesus' resurrection, okay? So Here's a long title for you. Uh, You're not going to remember it or be able to write it down that fast. But if you want it and want to read it later, Raymond Johnson, he has an article called Matthew 27, 51 through 54, Revisited. And then here's the the subtitle, which get ready for this, A Narratological Reinterpretation, or sorry, Reappropriation, A Narratological Reappropriation. What he's saying is that Matthew is is a piece of literature. It's not just a piece of literature. It, It looks at historic events. So he says there's historicity there, but also Matthew is making this beautiful reality of the gospel made known in a way by using his craft as a writer. Okay? And I think, you can, I think you can see this really well, just looking at the parallels. And you can write, I would say, just write the first four down or check the first four out later, right? In this story, we see darkness, the earth shook, people were raised, and then tombs were opened. In the same way, in the same parallel uh, events, we see at Jesus' resurrection, which we'll look at next week, there's dawn or some type of darkness. There's this earthquake. Jesus is risen, and then the tombs are open. So... This hypothesis is not saying the resurrection is made up or it's not historical. 
It's just saying this is a foretaste. And Matthew, in his writing, is, is doing beautiful work here with the parallels between um, the cosmological effects of Jesus' death in itself, and then also he'll look at later the resurrection. Okay, so to put it a different way, right, this is like Good Friday's like coming attraction, the previews for Easter's movie, or their Friday's appetizer before Sunday's meal, okay, for my, um, what's it called, um, Outback people, right, it's Friday's Bloomin' Onion before Sunday's steak, or the Chili's folks, it's Friday's chips and queso before Sunday's fajitas, okay? These resurrected states and all these cosmological things that are happening are a foretaste to what's to come next week. What's cool is that the gospel, right, it doesn't just affect creation. It doesn't just have these huge cosmological things. We also see that miraculously dead souls are being enlivened. Here's what the gospel does. Look at verse 54 with me. It says, When the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they were terrified and said, Truly this man was the Son of God. This is miraculous. The the Roman soldier who would have been considered unclean outside the people of enemy, not just outside, but worse, an enemy to the people of God. This man looked upon his death and he said, truly, that was the Son of God. The famed reformer Martin Luther, he said, the soldier's confession is the sign of the power of the death of Christ. The blood of Christ not only wakens dead bodies, which we're looking at that and we're like, that cra- that's crazy, but it also awakens sinners' souls. This is what Jesus' death on the cross does. It miraculously saves people. See, contrary to, to German philosophers or Disney or Tim McGraw, Scripture teaches us that it's not looking to our own death. It's not staring my death right in the face that allows us to be our truest selves, but rather it's looking to Christ's death that allows us to be our truest selves, to live as we were intended to live. Now, why, why is it important to, to look at these worldly philosophies, these cultural ideas of death and facing up to our death? Why will they not do? Because they're man-centric, The problem is that man cannot fix our fear of death because we have no way to defeat it. We don't have the capacity to cure our death. We don't have the capacity to cure sin on our own. One commentator, he says, human conscience rightly rejects cheap solutions to deep problems. (laughs) He's like, those knockoff Amazon products won't be cool with our conscience. We know it. We feel it. Nyla Barton, again, in What You're Feeling is Grief, she said, many of us have tried to save each other and tried to save ourselves. But it seems like nothing is working. Not our activism, not our self-care, not our hope that we try to manufacture. We, we know this. We know that cheap solutions are not going to fix our deepest questions or our deepest problems, those nagging questions or thoughts or feelings or actions, right? 
Why is it that you still feel that tinge of guilt even through the countless hours you've served at the soup kitchen? <laughs> why, why is it that you have those nagging thoughts of shame when you're just such a nice person to everybody? Why is it that you still fear deeply death when you're doing your best to live a good life? You work hard, you're a good parent or spouse or friend, then why is that still, still that, that nagging underneath it all? It's because cheap, human-centered solutions won't solve the, she- the fear and the shame and the guilt that are the consequences of our sin. Like a terminally ill patient, we can't cure it on our own. So if our solutions don't work, if they're not serviceable, then what is God's solution? Well, the answer is in Hebrews 9, 22. It says, according to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without the sacrifice of the Lamb, without the cross of Christ, there is no forgiveness. Human, your, your conscience will not allow you to do other stuff and try and put it in there. You know it. You felt it. The cross is not a cheap solution, though, friends. It's the only solution. It's the answer, right? It's not like, it's not living like you were dying, right, or, or Heidegger's like, just look at death in the face, or, or worse, like not thinking about death at all, those things aren't going to cut it. It's looking upon the death of the one who died for you. It's only as we look upon the cross that we can see and understand that, as we said in our liturgy, Jesus died the death that we deserve so that we could live the life that he wanted us to live. What's beautiful, guys, is because the the cross is not just some cheap solution, you get the opposite of, you get the opposite results of cheap solutions, right? The costliness of the cross brings about great results for sinful humanity. Look at what the cross does for you and me as sinners. Because of the cross, Jesus is your redemption, His death sets you free from enslavement to sin. Because of the cross, Jesus is your justification. There's a legal statement that says, you are no longer guilty, but are righteous instead. He's your imputation, meaning it's not just some like words or declarative statement. Christ literally puts on a cloth of righteousness around you. He takes his righteousness and places it upon you. Because of the Christ, because of the cross, Jesus is your propitiation, meaning he is the sacrifice that is demanded, as we saw in Hebrews 9:12. Because of the cross, Jesus is your expiation. Hear the X, like exit. He is taking your guilt and your liability away from you. Your credit card debt is canceled. You don't have to pay Discover anymore. He's got you. Because of the cross, Jesus is your reconciliation, right? You were once an enemy. You're like the Roman centurion, right? You were on the outside, and not just on the outside, but God did not want anything to do with you. He was against you, and you were against him. But because of Jesus' death, you're reconciled. And then because of the cross, Jesus is your victory, 
Because of his death, he defeated Satan, sin, and death, the things we all fear deep within our gut. It's victorious over those things on our behalf. Do you see? This is the power of the cross of Christ. This is the power of looking to Jesus' death. It's looking upon his death that the fear of death is conquered. It's looking upon him that we are truly set free to live the life that God intended us to, the, to live. Man, that's rough. Early reformer John Calvin, right, he said, For in the cross of Christ, as in a splendid theater, the incomparable goodness of God is set before the whole world. The glory of God shines, indeed, in all creatures on high and below. So he says there's common grace, but never more brightly than in the cross. If it be objected, if someone puts something forth against it, that nothing could be less glorious than Christ's death, I reply that in the death, looking at his death, hear that, we see a boundless glory which is concealed from the ungodly. If you're here today, whether you're a follower of Christ or not, here's how you can look upon Jesus' death in everyday life to make these realities not just pie-in-the-sky ideals, but boots-on-the-ground effects. When you feel like your sins are unforgiven, if you feel like there's just, man, there's just something more I have to do to make God love me. Maybe you're thinking, man, if I can just get this in order, then I'll be ready for God. If I get my finances good, or my addiction, or my anger, or my pride, if I get those things figured out, then I'll be ready for God. Friends, if that's you in such moments, you need to remind yourself the propitiation of Christ, that God's work is finished because of Christ. It's done, it's satisfied, it's taken care of. Again, you wouldn't send more money to Visa if somebody took care of your credit card debt. That makes no sense. It's done. The beauty is that those things won't add up. That actually frees you from having to, to, to strive. When you feel dirty, maybe stained with sins, you find it hard to look at yourself in the mirror because of what you did last night or the night before, or maybe the sins from your youth, as David says. If you feel dirty, remember that Christ's death has cleansed you He's literally washed you clean. There's no more stains, no more blemishes upon you. If you feel, when you wake up, you feel burdened by God's anger, afraid of his wrath and judgment, you need to remember, as the great hymn writer Augustus Toplady said, the double cure, you're safe from wrath and made pure means that whatever the mess of your life may be, if your faith is in Christ, you can offer up your life to Jesus and he perfects it on your behalf. And then finally, if you, if you struggle with loneliness, you struggle with the sense that no one is by your side, no one understands you, no one gets you, remember that you are reconciled to God. You're adopted, you're a part of his family. All of the resources of his strength, of his character and grace, it's available to you in Christ Jesus. You are no longer an orphan. You're adopted as a son or daughter of God. 
One of the realities of the gospel that we need to always remember is that we simply can't settle for man-centric approaches because they won't work. I have a, a seven-month-old, and I was going to show you guys a picture, but I, did, I ran out of time because we all love cute babies. So, um, but he he just he rolls around like crazy. It's insane. Like. I was joking the other day that he'll probably skip crawling because he rolls so fast. It's like you put him there. If you turn around, he's over there. If I stand at the top of the stairs in in our house and I look down and Cooper's down there, no matter how much rolling around he does, (laughs) even though he's all mobile on that first floor, right? No matter how much rolling around he does, he is never going to get up the stairs, he can't, right? He, he can't like physically roll up over that first step. He can't even get on the top the next step. It's an impossibility. The reality is the same is true for us, right? We're all like baby Cooper, seven months old, just on the ground, rolling around, you know, kind of bumping upon truths, thinking, hey, we're kind of figuring it out now. I don't need Jesus. I don't need God. I got this. I rolled into a new room. This room's cool. What truth is in here? Right. If we bump around on the floor, that's, that's cool. Like you'll, you'll hit some things. You'll see part of the house but you can never roll up the stairs, right? If I want Cooper to be up on the, on the second story with me, I have to walk myself down, lower myself to him, pick him up, and bring him up so he can experience, I'm, it's not the riches of heaven, right? It's not that great upstairs, but so he can experience the second story, right? It's a whole new world to him. North African theologian Augustine he writes this. He says, so that we might also, we as sinful, human, human, uh, sinful humanity, so that we might also have the means to go. He's like, we want to be in the presence of God. We want to get there. He says, so that we might also have the means to go. The one we were longing to go to, God, came here from there. He came to the bottom floor where we were so that we could go up to the top floor where we wanted to go. And what did he make? A wooden raft for us to cross the sea. For no one can cross the sea of this world unless carried over it on the cross of Christ. Friends, when we face up to the question of what am I or what is mankind to do about death, the reality is we're asking the complete wrong question. Scripture teaches us that we need to be asking, what is God to do about death? Or rather, what has God done about death. And in the cross, we see God's answer. For all who believe in Jesus, this is what Christ accomplishes for us. We see this um, in 1 Corinthians 15. The apostle Paul writes, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives, God gives On our behalf, victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the good news, friends. That is the glory of the gospel. It's as we look upon Christ and his death, the one that we deserved, all the mockery, all the pain, all the agony, all the anguish because of our sin. It's as we look upon that, then we experience the life that God always wanted us to live, one reconciled with him, one a part of his family, experienced the joy and the riches, or as I think Ephesians says, the incomparable riches of God's glory in Christ Jesus. Friends, every week when we gather together, we take a meal called communion. 
This meal reminds us of the cost of the cross. It reminds us that Jesus' blood was shed, that his body was broken. And the reason we take it every week is to remember this sacrifice, to meditate on what God has done on our behalf. If you want to partake in this meal together, if you are a Christ follower, this meal is for you. If you're not, I encourage you to abstain from the meal, Um, not because we want to exclude you, but um, Scripture teaches that this meal is for those who are about the reality of Christ. The communion narrative in Matthew teaches us um, that as Jesus and his disciples were eating, that he took bread He blessed it and broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Let us take and eat this bread together. On that same night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a cup then and after giving thanks, he said to his disciples, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Let's take and drink this cup together. Church, Paul tells us in Corinthians that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we're pronouncing Christ's death until he returns. Let's pray. Jesus, As we've looked at um, the Garden of Gethsemane and your trial, the agony, the pain, the betrayal, the mockery, and now even today as we watched you hung up on a cross, bled out for us, we are reminded that the cross is not, a, it's not a, a cheap solution. In that, we're reminded of, man, just the weight of our sin. That the person that we now call our brother had to die on our behalf. But what's beautiful is we also see the magnitude of what you've accomplished for us, Jesus Through your death, we experience redemption and justification and propitiation and imputation and expiation and reconciliation and victory, God. God, before, before we turn to Easter, before we skip past your death to the resurrection, which we're prone to do, I, I ask, God, that, we would, that you would help us to meditate on um, your work on the cross. As we see your death and what it accomplished, we, like the centurion, would cry out, truly, he is the Son of God. Amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com backslash Carlisle 
C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.